Amen. Amen. Well, guys, grab hold of a Bible and make your way to the book of Daniel. We are in Daniel chapter 11. In fact, we're finishing up Daniel chapter 11 this morning. As Sunday mornings, we've been working verse by verse through the book of Daniel and seeking to understand things that are there. We're hoping that it's making sense, and we hope today will as well. And that, for that reason, we're hoping you have a Bible and you're making your way there. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles around you. Chairs in front of you, you have uh, just Bibles that are there, page number on the screen, so you can get there rapidly. If you want to use an electronic device, that works as well. One way or another, we're inviting you to be there so you see and hear. It's true for us here, for you guys in our overflow, those online, the same invitation. We hope you got a Bible. We hope that you will follow, read along, allow God to speak to you through His Word this morning in a way that would be genuine and effective. So that's our aim. That's what we're longing for. Let's take a moment and ask for it. Let's just ask God to work into us. I'm going to lead in prayer one more time. I'm going to invite you to pray quietly as well, hoping that you would be asking that God would speak to you today what He has for you. Father, we thank You right now for Your Word, Your truth. I think about what You tell us, that Jesus, You said if we would know the truth, the truth would set us free. God, I believe that, and I ask for that, that you would help us to comprehend and that you would help us to understand things this morning. Pray for this section specifically, that we would just understand what you're communicating and in the midst of that, hear what you have for us. Lord, one of the things I love about that is that it would hopefully be understanding, but then it would be something so much more. That if we would hear you, if we would hear you this morning, there'd be something in this that would be so very personal, so very specific, and that would be different all the way around this room, different online, different in all the spaces where this is being heard, if we'd but hear your voice. So, Lord, I'm asking for it. I'm asking that you'd grant us favor and give us ears to hear what you would say to us this morning, that by your Spirit you would communicate to us your truth, and we ask for that right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, Daniel chapter 11, we want to talk about a segue to the Antichrist. Now, let me just be very clear right off the bat. When I say segue, I'm not talking about the two-wheeled motor device that you'd kind of ride, right? That's a segue, S-E-G-A-Y. No, I'm talking about segue, which is S-E-G-U-E, pronounced exactly the same way because that's the way the English language works. But in one sense, it's an idea of a very smooth almost imperceptive transition. The idea is that somehow you're in something and all of a sudden you're somewhere else. That segue is what we want to talk about this morning because that's exactly what happens here in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12 is one long vision that Daniel gets in, in an incredible just space of communicating things that God has. One of the things that's important to understand is that from Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, to right in the middle of Daniel 11, he really is communicating about a section of history that was coming, and a very clear section that would be prophetically fulfilled. But right in the middle of it, there's a segue. Everything changes. We move from the past to the future. That picking up specifically in verse 36 to the end of the chapter, we're in an entirely different space. We're in an entirely different place where that would be just moving and, and, and interacting in a way that would be altogether just challenging for us to understand. See, so think about it this way. There in Daniel chapter 10, verse 1 to verse, chapter 11, verse 35, it's a snapshot in history, a snapshot in history that runs 370 years that was fulfilled between 536 and 167 B.C., we talked about this two weeks ago for you guys who've been with us in our study of Daniel, and we told you that what Daniel gets is a glimpse into history that's amazing. It's 135 fulfilled prophecies that God describes the future for Daniel in an amazingly precise, accurate way that even to this day is mind-numbing and wonderful. For him, it's future. For us, that's the past. These things did happen, fulfilled accurately. But then something happens. Right around verse 29, he begins to talk about a time in history that's known as the abomination of desolation. This is what we talked about last week. It's a time where part of that literally was fulfilled in 167 BC. 
Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid king at that point in time, comes into Jerusalem, decimates it, sets up a, a, you know, a pig on, on the altar of, for God, sacrifices it, seeks to do away with everything that is God-honoring. It's a horrendous moment in history, and it's a part of those 135-fold prophecies. So if you were watching that, you'd be saying, okay, well, that happened, and it did. But interesting enough, right about there, we get a little bit of a dual fulfillment. Again, we talked about this some in last week's study, so if you need to go back and get that, you can. But Jesus tells us that that abomination of desolation both was past but is also future, that it's going to happen again, that there's a future event known as the abomination of desolation that's coming that will be fulfilled again. And then from that moment forward, we dive into a very different point in history. Yeah, from beginning in verse 36 to the end in verse 45, we begin to talk about a time in history that's known as the Great Tribulation, a time where the Antichrist is going to show up and be very, very prominent in world history, a time that's going to last three and a half years. Now, we need to talk about that a little bit more in a moment, but I just want you to kind of feel for me with me how wild this was. How that if you were reading the whole chapter, how that in one sense there was never a place where he said, okay, stop, this is past and now this is future, or it, you know, that somehow you could feel it. It just had this very, just, just segue into a different place. Imagine it like this. Imagine that you are watching some really old black and white television. You know, old where the cameras weren't that clear. It's really grainy, but you know, it's good. You know, you're just enjoying kind of watching this. And see, you're watching this, you know, kind of epic, whatever it would be. And then as you're watching it, something happens. At first, you don't really notice. At first, just like a little color comes into the screen and and the black and white begins to change. But then all of a sudden, you're in 4K brilliance. All of a sudden, I mean, it's just bang. I mean, you're in a whole different space, and, and, and the whole different scene is out, out playing, and you find yourself wondering, like, wait, how did I get here? I mean, I thought we were over here, and now we're over here. Did I, like, fall asleep? You know, did I close my eyes? And I mean, how did, where did we, you know, make this transition from what we were looking at to what we are looking at? And that's a little bit of the question. That's a little bit of trying to process through what we're seeing because that's exactly what happens here. That's exactly what God does is he takes this section of history and then all of a sudden it fades and we're in the future. So we need to talk about what that is this morning. And then we need to talk about why. And that's where we want to go. That's what we want to do. So let's begin this way. I mean, we need to talk about the future And so it might be helpful. Let's do a very brief, quick Prophecy 101. Now, if this is brand new information for you, I apologize because it may just be overwhelming. And in that, just want to tell you, hey, we'd love to walk with you and help you understand it. Not every Christian understands these in the same way, but this is how we see what God tells us is coming, that he describes a prophetic future into how that's going to play out. So as we think about that timeline, we begin to understand that God describes in his word a section of history that is a seven-year section known as the tribulation. Tribulation that is coming on the world. Seven really hard years. At the end of those seven years, there's going to be a thousand-year millennium, which is interesting all by itself, though we're not going to talk much about that this morning. But the tribulation, going back to it, it actually can be divided in half. God does so in his word, and you have the first half and the second half, and it breaks up into three and a half year sections. That second section is known as the great tribulation, or maybe you might want to say the great part of the tribulation, the most difficult section of this seven-year time that is coming. So all this is the Bible tells us is coming, and key in the midst of it is this man known as the Antichrist. A man who's going to come into the world scene, and he's going to be empowered by Satan. He's going to be inhabited by him and just foist onto the world the, the worst darkness that's ever come and some of the most difficult days that are coming. Again, God lays that all the way out. Well, the Antichrist, it lets us know that in many ways he's going to be revealed at the beginning of that, that he's going to come onto the scene at the very beginning of that tribulation. It would give it to us this way back in Daniel 9, for you guys who were with us when we did Daniel 9 that it says he, speaking of the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one week. That he'd come along the scenes in that one week and the metaphor that's being used there in Daniel 9, it's a seven-year period, which once more gives us this math that we actually understand all the way through the Bible, that that's going to be a seven-year period of time. Now, quick FYI, 
we think about the Antichrist coming, and one of the things that's helpful for us to kind of process through is that what's going to take place, I believe, right before that is known as the rapture of the church. It gives it to us this way in the book of Thessalonians. Paul's just speaking. He says, and now you know what is restraining, that he, that is the Antichrist, may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. He says, now you know, there's, there's something that's holding back the Antichrist, that's restraining this moment from coming. And he says, you know who it is, and he who's going to do that until he's taken out of the way. Who is that? Simply put, I believe that's the Holy Spirit in the church. The Holy Spirit that's poured out in Pentecost, that pours into his church, we become that restraining influence in the world. And when we're taken out, he's taken out of, of the world from the restraining part, and the Antichrist will move into power. Again, that kind of just is helpful for us to understand that's where it is, and so we have this rapture that will take place, and after that, then this man moves on the scene. Tells us again there in Daniel that he makes a covenant with many for one week. It would seem to be almost a peace treaty that he'd set with the world, try to bring in things, and it seems like everybody buys into it until halfway through. Right in the middle of the tribulation, we have this moment that again, we spent time on last week, the abomination of desolation, this horrendous moment where he steps into this place and changes everything. Again, going back to Daniel 9, it would give it to us this way. In the middle of that week, of that seven-year period of time, three and a half years, he'll bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be the one who makes desolate. That's one of the places where the abomination of desolation is described. It's also described in the verses that we did last week in chapter 11 as he tells us this is going to happen. In fact, we're going to talk about this a little bit more this morning. We need to look at this thing that God says is this horrendous moment, this moment where he's going to come into this and stop all other worship, anything else that is kind of that, and put himself up in this place that's the abomination of desolation. Again, that's what's coming. That's that place where he is. And so that's what really begins that final place. And at the end of that, it dealt with things we need to think through. So let's put it through in a different way. You know, if you were to look at one of those maps, maybe you kind of, you know, go into a, a mall and you look at one of those mall maps or something like that. You always kind of begin by saying, you know, that little place that says, where are you? Well, I just want to make sure that you understand. I think if you were to do that, we're right here. We're in this space right before the rapture. And, and once that happens, you know, all this begins to unpack for us. Now, how long is it from where you and I are till the rapture happens? Well, probably about five minutes. No, I'm just kidding. I don't really know. I mean, I don't really know. We know it's coming. I mean, it could happen at any moment. I mean, that's just the, the reality that's going to there. No one knows the day or the hour, but it seems that we're right about there, that when Jesus comes back and takes us home, then all of this will begin to kind of move very, very rapidly, begin to kind of unfold, and, and that's what we want to think through. So that, again, that's a quick prophecy 101, and if that doesn't make sense, again, you can ask us, but what's important about it is because you need to see all this, because now we want to zoom in to that last section, to that three and a half year period of time, to, to where it is, because that's what happens here. That's that section of history that now begins to be unpacked, where all of a sudden we were in the past, and now we jump to the middle of the tribulation and see this final section of history beginning to be unpacked for us in, in kind of a few details that would help us understand that. So let's try to figure out what he, what he gives us, what he, what he begins to help us understand. And it really does dive into that moment that we call the abomination of desolation, a place where the Antichrist is going to show up on the scene and proclaim himself to be God. Why don't you just notice it? Let's read verse 36 and verse 37. It says, Then the king shall do according to his own will, and he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Yeah, this is the abomination of desolation. This is that place where right in the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist steps into Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, and makes a public proclamation and says, you know what, actually, 
I'm God. <laughs> I'm the one who is God, and everything else is false. And he's going to magnify himself and, and, and seek to just exalt himself into that place. Again, reading in verse 36, the king will do according to his own will, and he shall exalt and magnify himself above every God. Say that he's the one. At the same moment, very specifically, he's going to target the true God. As it tells us, he'll speak blasphemies in verse 36 there against the God of gods. That he'll begin to mock God and, and belittle and say horrible things about who God is and, and, and say that he's, you know, that all of it being false, he'll begin to do this in some very effective ways that are again going to last for three and a half years. This deception that he foists on mankind and, and the way that it happens. Then it tells us in verse 37, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. Okay, he's not going to regard the God of his fathers. What does that mean? Well, let me just pause and say this. We've talked about this a couple times in the book of Daniel, and if it's helpful, please understand there is this thing that sometimes we would say there's this prophetic perspective on the way that God does this when we think through prophecy that in many ways the accuracy of prophecy is best seen in a rearview mirror. Now, let me be clear what I'm saying. God means it. I mean, God gives us prophecy, and everything he says happens accurately. And when he does it, I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that God was speaking the truth, and we get that. But sometimes to see it before it happens, there is oftentimes not enough detail that could help us fully grasp how that whole thing's going to play out. And if you were with us early parts of the book of Daniel, we talk about how Daniel saw the coming of Alexander the Great or the rise of Greece. And the reality was you could know it was coming. But how it would actually play out, you wouldn't see till afterwards, but afterwards you would go, boy, that was so accurate. I mean, what God said, it happened just the way he said it, but heading into it, it would have been a little bit blurry. I want you to understand that's kind of how it is, that many times God's not giving us, you know, all the questions that we want to have answered. We just get a sense of understanding, hey, that's what this is. So in that sense, we look at a couple phrases here and how this is actually going to fulfill out, not all Bible students are clear on. What does it mean that he's not going to regard the God of his fathers? Well, it might mean that the Antichrist is Jewish. That term, God of their fathers, is a biblical phrase that's used a number of times throughout the Bible where you would say, you know, they, they, they honor the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob kind of thing. And it could be a sense that he's going to step into that. That wouldn't be a huge surprise, but not everybody agrees. It might also just mean that he is, you know, disregarding everything that came before that. Maybe the way that he was raised or maybe even the God of everything that went before, that everything that would be a part of that. In fact, why don't you just fast forward with me down for a moment, and just as he, as he lays this whole thing out, it tells us um, in verse 38, it says, in their place he'll honor a God of fortresses, a God which his fathers did not know, and he'll honor him with gold and silver and precious stones. It's a God that his fathers did not know. That's just as helpful, and it might just help us step into this moment, that there might be a sense of just telling us that what he's going to do at this moment is not to embrace anything that's come before this, but to try to create something new. Now, that's just an interesting reality. It seems to be true, and that might be helpful. Every now and then, people will try to figure these things out, and you'll have somebody that will say, well, you know, the Antichrist, he's going to come, and he's going to come, and it's going to be maybe a Roman Catholic thing. Or maybe it's going to be an Islamic thing, and he's going to come in the midst of that. And I just want to tell you how those are interesting thoughts, but it would seem what he's telling us here is it's none of that. That when he comes on the scene, he's not embracing something that was presently, you know, a part of people's worship before this. He's going to come in and try to bring something, quote-unquote, new. That isn't embracing what came before him, but is embracing something that wasn't recognized there. Okay, so that might be helpful. It's at least a way of understanding. He's not going to regard the God of his fathers, it tells us, again, there in verse 37, nor, he says, the desire of women. What does that mean? Well, I mean, it may just mean that he's kind of a, a practicing homosexual. I mean, that just could be the part of it. I mean, that might be a, a way to say that. Now, I just don't know how you process that. wouldn't be surprising. Our world's kind of broken, and you can kind of say, well, that might be there, that said, though that might be true, it doesn't really feel genuine in this section. 
what do you mean, Jim? Well, this section that you and I are reading is all about gods. It's all about the way that people worship. So that it began in verse 36 by telling us that he's going to magnify himself above every god. And then it ends in verse 37 saying he shall exalt himself above them all. So it would seem that everything that's being kind of emphasized in this section is an attack on truth and an attack on God. So if that's true, then what is this? What is, it, what is it being talked about? Well, it might specifically mean that he's rejecting the promise of Jesus or they're rejecting the promise of Christ. Because see, there was a prophecy that spoke of Jesus this way. In the book of Haggai, it gives it to us this way. It says, I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. This is a prophecy of, of Jesus and his coming, and you might just notice in the New King James for sure, the desire of all nations is capitalized because it's a title. It's a title for Jesus, that he's the one that everybody really desires. And so you might even recognize that. Think of, you know, in songs, even the Christmas song, you know, dear desire of every nation. That's what this is. He's the desire. He's, he's the, the one that somehow in every nation, there, there's this something that's there. And that tells us something about the hope of the Messiah, of Jesus, how it actually does permeate the world. How that true for us in Christ, true in, in, in Judaism, that even now they say they long for the Messiah, but almost in everything, there is this promise that God would send hope, that would be the rescuer. So it could be that the Antichrist comes on the scene and attacks that entirely. He not only disregards God, attacks him, disregards everything that's there, but very specifically attacks even the hope of a Messiah. Just saying, hey, that that's a foolish hope and, and, and just it's something that's altogether there going out of his way to attack Jesus. And I think that's what it is. I think when he says it here in this six, section, that's what he's speaking is attacking the hope of Christ, the hope of the Messiah. So he's going to come and do all of this. And again, just reading it in verse 37, he, he should nor shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. That's the abomination. That's what Satan's going to do. The Antichrist is going to do, kind of this Satan-empowered individual. It's really what Satan has always wanted to do, to kind of step into this place where that would happen and, and really be a part of that. And that's exactly, again, what God's telling us. Now, we see that here as Daniel's telling us what's going to come, and we see that as God describes the Antichrist all the way through the Scriptures. I think about it this way. When Paul would talk about him in 2 Thessalonians, he would say, the man of sin, which is the Antichrist, by the way, when he is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. He says, that's what's coming. That's what the Antichrist is going to do. He's going to sit in the temple and tell the whole world, hey, I'm actually the God that you want. I'm actually the God that would, you, you should serve. In the book of Revelation, it lets us know not only is it going to foist that on the world, he's going to make it capital punishment not to do that. It says he's going to cause the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the beast, which is the Revelation term for the Antichrist, and as many as who would not worship the beast to be killed. To not worship him becomes capital punishment upon the world, and that's exactly what he's going to seek to foist into this moment, seeking to bring everything that would be and all that would be a part of that. Again, just understanding that's where this is going. That's what he's wanting us to understand. So he's going to step there, say, I'm God. At the same moment, he's going to exalt a God of fortresses. That's what it says there in verse 38. Let's just read it. But in their place... He will honor, honor a God of fortresses and a God which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold, silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. For he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. So what is this thing that, that the Antichrist is going to bring into the scene? What is this God of fortresses? Well, can I go back and say that prophetic perspective thing again? Like, it'll be really clear when it happens. I mean, it'll be like, yep, that's exactly what this is. It's going to be something that's not been known up to this point in time. It's going to be something that he's going to bring into that. How he's going to do that, we don't know. But we could pick up a couple of things. It does seem to be something that seems to exalt almost a military kind of a thing, that the idea of a god of fortresses 
seems to be something that exalting human power and human ability and, and, and who we are in the midst of this, probably maybe even a rejection of this belief in a God that you cannot see, of a God who's invisible, it might kind of foist upon this mankind saying, you know, hey, we just need to leave all of these things behind, and we need to kind of enter into this new era of, you know, kind of human history and embrace, you know, our just prominence, and, and, and he's going to pour into this money, he's going to pour into this power, it says he's going to exalt all that that would be. Now, how that lie will play out, again, is unknown. I will give you one possibility, and it's worth just thinking through, but again, not in not any way sure thing, but it is one way that it might happen, and it really is the whole idea of aliens and how that whole thing plays out. Again, I don't know where you land on this. If you want to talk to us later, you can. Um, our quick take on it, we live in Roswell, so it's worth quickly noting, but you know, we just don't really believe that a lot of the belief about aliens is actually biblically valid. It doesn't prove that way there. It doesn't fit into the fall of mankind and all of it. Much more of it really seems to be the demonic kind of world in the midst of it. And so all of that becomes an interesting thing because what he might do is kind of play that card, which is interesting because it seems that sometimes even from movies and things happening in the world, it's like he's almost like kind of building people's anticipation of this where you'd kind of get this feeling where he might say, hey, you know what, it's time to enter into the next kind of evolution of mankind and kind of embrace your place in the universe and we don't need other things and all these other things are aliens and you can stand against them. Let's build a military structure. Let's kind of, you know, kind of build our world to defend it. It really could be a lie that would unify mankind and really kind of move all of that away. Again, will it be that? I don't know if it'll be that. I just know that that's one possibility. Either way, he's going to pour into this brand new thing, something that's never been known before this, something that, again, that he tells us that, you know, as he does this, it's, not, it's a God that his fathers did not know, that nobody else has done that in verse 38, but just gold and silver and precious stones. I mean, money's going to be poured into this in massive ways. Well, all of that's going to happen, and in many ways, that's going to be what he foists on the world, and it's going to last for three and a half years. And it might just go back and just see there in verse 36, kind of just skimmed over it, but see it again. It says, the king, speaking of the Antichrist, will do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, and speak, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper, till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. He's going to do this. It's going to last. His kind of big lie that he's going to foist on the world is going to be effective for three and a half years. I guess I want you to almost feel that with me for a moment. I guess I want you to almost just imagine this because this is Satan's big move. This is what Satan has been trying to do since the beginning of time. It's the lie that he believed, and we know even in his fall, it tells us in Isaiah that he wanted to exalt himself to be as God. It's definitely been a part of our world, and he's going to foist it on mankind, and it's going to last three and a half years. I mean, like his big day, like his big move, that's as long as it lasts. Think about it this way. Daniel in chapter 12 would give it to us this way. He says, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. It says from that moment when the Antichrist steps up and says no more, no more sacrifices, and he exalts himself, mark it, it's going to be 1,290 days. Now, if you quickly could do your math, they use 360-day years. You would divide it. You would get three uh, three and a half years plus 30 days, which we'll talk about when we get to Daniel 12, like why there's 30 days extra. But either way, I just want you to kind of just feel at this moment how brief that is. I mean, like, that's just small. I mean, three and a half years is certainly not a long time, but it is going to be an incredibly hard time. Jesus said, speaking of those three and a half years, that one of the reasons it's kept so short is because it's going to be so destructive. He said, if it was longer, nobody would survive. It's going to be such an incredibly bad time. Well, that's what we're watching. So we're watching the Antichrist. We're seeing kind of what begins this three and a half year period. And that's what we've dove into. That's where, you know, our segue had gone to here in Daniel 11. It gets there and then it kind of moves towards the end. So we look at the beginning of those three and a half years, which is this lie that the Antichrist is going to say, hey, he's God. And then we go to the end of it, which really is this picture of a battle of Armageddon. Why don't you just notice verse 40 with me for a moment. It says that at the time of the end, 
The king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. Okay. Quick pause. Here's one of the problems of having to teach Daniel 11 in sections, not being able to cover all of it, is that terminology might be lost on you right now. If you had been with us back in the early part of Daniel 11, you might have been able to follow along that he'd been using those terms, king of the south, king of the north. And it really was this picture between the Seleucid Empire in the north, the Ptolemaic Empire in the south, about Egypt area, and this wars that would move back and forth. Well, if we take those metaphors, I mean, because in one sense we've moved from the past into the future, but he's still using them, we, we begin to understand that somehow that's going to manifest itself in those last days. There's going to be this king of the south that's going to rise up against the Antichrist, that's going to you know, kind of move against them. Now, who's the king of the south? I have no idea because I don't even know what the world's going to look like at that point in time. It's around the Egypt area. I mean, it, what's going to be present in that space? The world might change radically by that point in time. It is possible some would say, well, maybe this will be kind of an Islamic uh, Arab kind of revolution against the Antichrist, because again, he will have rejected them as well, and many of the nations that are a part of this, that even seem to be a part of this, might fall into that category, but again, that might entirely change. But then we get the second term, which is the king of the north, and I don't want to spend a bunch of time on this, because I think it might be confusing, but I will say, some prophecy students believe that this is a reference to another battle that's going to happen against the Antichrist. And they might think, well, maybe it's kind of like an Ezekiel 38, 39, this northern, northern uh, just kind of forces that will come. Simply put, I don't think so. I don't really think this is where Ezekiel 38 and 39 is, which is a whole different study, not even going there right now. Uh, but I just want to tell you, if you were following the terminology, well, before verse 36... The king of the north was Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the one who brings in the abomination of desolation. So if we keep that terminology and it kind of just follows some kind of, you know, just flow of logic, the king of the north here would be the Antichrist. That, you know, moving from Antiochus Epiphanes, now we become the one who is the Antichrist. And so follow that thought with me. So somewhere it's going to happen. This king of the south is going to rear its ugly head. They're going to, at the time of the end, the king of the south is going to attack. Then it says the king of the north. And again, I put to you, I believe, not all Bible students believe it, but I do. I think this is a reference to the Antichrist. He'll come against him, this king of the south, like a whirlwind. With chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, he shall enter the countries and overwhelm them and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries will be overthrown. But they shall escape, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of, of Ammon. Okay, so much we don't understand, but at least you just need to feel it for a moment. So three and a half years are happening. The Antichrist has made himself, said, hey, I'm God, I'm going to be in control, maybe exalting this military power, but he's still dealing with rebellious mankind. And interesting enough, it's not going to go well for him. Like, this isn't like the whole world just, you know, falls into allegiance and they're like, yes. Somewhere along the line, some of them said, no way. We're like, done. We're going we're gonna to rebel. And so they decide to come and pack. And so he's furious. He brings his entire might, wipes out this entire uprising, wipes out the king of the south. He, he comes into Israel, which is the glorious land. But even then, there are sections that he can't conquer which again, it tells us there as we're looking at it, it says Edom, Moab, and the prominent places of Ammon. That's in verse 41. He's unable to conquer them. Why? It's a whole different study, but I'll just quickly toss it out. The Bible lets us know that heading into the great tribulation, God invites the Jews who would believe him to leave Israel and make themselves north into the land of Edom. Some believe into the land of Petra, that it would be a place where they would be protected from the Antichrist for that section of place, that it would be kind of like a, a, a place of protection that he can't get to. And interesting enough, he can't. <laughs> like he can't get there, which is a whole different kind of fun thing to think through. That said, he can conquer everything else. He tells us there in verse 42, he'll stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over treasuries of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and also the Libyans and the Ethiopians will follow at his heels. I mean, he's just going to have all this conquering, all of those things. So he defeats this first kind of king of the south that makes his way there. But then he hears other news. 
Verse 44, the news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. I mean, you just got to almost imagine this for a moment. I mean, so you're thinking through these last three and a half years of human history, it's getting ugly. I mean, it's, it, it, there's a place that he is warring against anybody and everybody. He's killing anybody that won't acknowledge him. He's coming against nations, and he's just furious, you know, kind of moving against any news. So he defeats the king of the south. He hears things in the east and the north, and he's mad, and he, he leads those troops again, just decimating everywhere he goes. Again, much we don't understand, but again, we just get a feel for how the world is moving at this moment and these last moments of, of human history, and this last moment of the, of the world and the way it's working, where the Antichrist is there. At that moment, it tells us where he lands, verse 45, and he shall plant his tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, and yet shall come to his end, and no one will help him. So he comes and he plants himself in the land of Israel, between the seas, which would have been the Mediterranean Sea, which is a term used in the Bible, what, what that was, and, and between the, the holy mountain, which is there in Jerusalem. It tells us that he's going to come there. In fact, the whole world is going to be gathering for a battle happening there. In the book of Revelation, it would give it to us this way. It says, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out into the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them together for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So, so the demons are actually at work, so this whole, the nations are all coming together. They're being led here both because the Antichrist is there, but also just being lied to through all of those things, and they're going to be gathered together to the place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon. That's where it's going to happen. That's the kind of final battle that's going to be taking place this. Armageddon, where is that? Well, it probably is best translated Har-Mageddon, which is kind of the plain of Megiddo. And that's a literal place right between the Mediterranean Sea and the land of Israel. Put a picture on the screen. This is the, the, the valley of Megiddo, uh, where probably this final battle is going to take place, right there in the land of Israel. It's a fascinating place. Uh, I show you a picture. It may not be helpful. I'll just tell you this. There's nothing like standing there. I hope that, you know, as this COVID season passes, that we can again do tours to Israel and how that whole thing's going to work out is still a little bit unknown right now. But I want to tell you, I've stood there a number of times and there's nothing like standing there. There's nothing like standing there and just feeling it, looking over this valley and recognizing this is where the final battle happens, right here. This is where the Antichrist is going to make his final stand, and that's exactly what's going to happen. He's going to come and plant his, his tents here. The armies of the world are going to be amassed here in this kind of, you know, just final battle as it begins to mount, and we actually know what the battle is about. Though he had kind of conquered other kingdoms and he kind of gone against these others who had kind of raised their hand against him, the reason they're there in Israel is to fight against Jesus, to fight against him coming. Yeah, it gives it to us this way in the book of Revelation. It says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. We'll read it again in a moment, but the him is Jesus who's coming back riding on his white horse, who's coming back in the second coming at this moment. But I just want you to focus on, on what it's telling us. They're gathered here at the battle of Armageddon to fight Jesus. They're there to, to try to stop Jesus from coming. I mean, they're there to make war against him who sat on the horse. And again, this is one of those like wild moments where I'm thinking, how do you sell that? I mean, how do you kind of like, let's get, you know, tanks and planes and nuclear bombs because we're going to stop Jesus from coming. Again, maybe it's the whole alien thing. Maybe he'll convince them that, that Jesus is an alien and they're trying to, you know, just resist this alien invasion. I don't know how it will work, I just know that that then is the focus, that they gather together at this moment, they gather into this space, but what he's telling us very clearly here is it doesn't work. Again, just read it in our verse there, at the, the verse 45, and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious, land, glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. Right here is where it ends. Right here is where all of that comes to an end. Right here, there is this place where we think about what this looks like and all that's going to be taking place. There is this sense that he comes to a helpless and hopeless immediate end. 
I mean, here he is. I mean, this is, this is now the, this final display of what Satan is long to do, what the Antichrist is do, raising their fist against Jesus. And it's just done. I mean, it's just, you know, it's like the way it just words, it's like there's none to help him. I mean, there was like, there's no, there's no help in this. It's just so done. I like the way it's worded here, but I also like the way it's given to us in other places. We think about in the book of Revelation when it describes it. First of all, describing Jesus coming there in chapter 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he, which is Jesus, who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So this is Jesus. He's coming back, riding on this white horse, just bringing in the armies of heaven, which is probably you and I, by the way. And, and so just coming back with him is this incredible return into the midst of this. And he says the beast, which again is the Antichrist, was captured and cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, which is hell. says he just grabs him and kind of tosses him in there like it's just done. It's not just done for the Antichrist, though. It's done for the world that has joined him at that moment. Because those who have come to fight against Jesus, it says the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Like all of this rebellion led by the Antichrist, all the people who came to fight against Jesus, it's over in a moment. In fact, I like it even better the way Paul describes it in Thessalonians. He says it this way. He says, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. I mean, it's just over. Jesus comes back, and, and, and just the glory of who he is, just the word of his mouth, and, and the battle is done. There is no battle. I mean, there's just no help in there. It just ends. I mean, it just is a part of that. That's what he's laying out to us here, that we could see all of that, that that's what he's wanting us to understand. Hey, this is going to happen. Okay, so that's the section of history. So we're thinking through what we're thinking through and trying to understand here Daniel 11. And in one sense, he gives us a quick view of what's going to happen in this last moment, the abomination and the end, the lie and, and how poorly it ends. I mean, there's a bunch of little things in the midst of it, but in a sense, that's what he's giving us. And that's where it flows in this section. So let's kind of put it back up here and try to think this through one more time. So if you could feel it, if you could almost read all of it right now again and just be able to process it through, there is again this amazing scene. So we've walked through this section of history that was fulfilled, this 370-year period, but all of a sudden, again, there's this segue, and we get to the end. And, and he gives us a preview of what's to come. And so my question for you is this. I hope that makes some sense. I hope you can kind of feel what happens, because again, it's a little bit wild. We were in a section of history, and then all of a sudden we're at the end. And you kind of have to ask the question, so what is it you're supposed to understand? Like, why tell us this this way? What is it that we're supposed to grab hold of in this? Now, let me just be clear. He doesn't give us the applications here in the text, so they are things that we have to kind of go at. I'm going to give you what I think, and I do so with the humility of saying, hey, you might see it differently, or you might have more. Totally interested. I think it'd be great to see, but I do think there's a couple things that seem to me pretty firm that I believe are true, and I think this is seeking to communicate. So as we think about applying Daniel chapter 11 and how this whole thing plays out, what is it we're supposed to stand? I would say it this way, that Part of what you're supposed to understand is that all earthly roads end here. All earthly roads, they end here. So you're thinking through this whole thing. So the idea is, again, we were looking at a section of history that, again, happened, fulfilled accurately. Then all of a sudden, I mean, like the scene changed and we're in the future in this final section of history. And, and there is sense to be a connection like, okay, what was happening there this is its final fulfillment. Now, I think it's true for that section of history. And I think it's true for every section of history. I think you could take any section of human history, any section of 300 years, if you will, and look at what Satan is doing and the world is doing and the rebellious of mankind, and you could kind of follow the flow and the ebbs and say, you know where this ends? You know where this is going to go? This is where it's going. The, the rebellion you see in the world, the things that the lies that Satan's working in the midst of it, you know where that's going to play out. It's playing out here into this final section of human history. 
Now, again, I like that, but let me give it to you in a different way. In Thessalonians, one of the verses we already looked at, it tells us, then the lawless one, which one more time is the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. This one who rejects everything that's right. That's kind of the idea of lawless. Rejecting what God says is, is, is true, what is God's law, what is God's way. He's going to be revealed. And when he's revealed, Jesus is going to come back and destroy him with his coming. But what Paul tells us right before this is that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. One more time, I think that's us. I think that's the Holy Spirit in us. But here's what you need to feel. The Antichrist is coming, but the currents, the ebbs and the flows, the lawlessness, it's already a part of our world. It's already a part of our world. I mean, that's where it's going to end, but it's not like we're just waiting for that three and a half years to see these. You know, it's already happening in our world. The brokenness, the rebellion, the, the arrogance of mankind that shakes its fist against God, it's so much a part of our world, but this is where that ends. It's where it all ends. Now, I believe that with all of my heart and tell you again, that's not just true for one road. That's all roads that reject God. Anything in our world right now that says, no, not interested in Jesus. No, (laughs) I don't want God. That's where its destiny is going. It's all heading to this moment where it's going to culminate in the Antichrist rebellion and end in a moment. That's where it's going. That's where it's going. I I think without any doubt in my mind, for me, that becomes one of the great lessons of Daniel chapter 11, that you could see almost this connection to that section of history to where it's going. Now, if that makes sense, and I hope it does, because I think it really is the, the big place, there are some applications that flow out of that. For starters, it should affect us so that we wouldn't fret over evildoers. Now, that's actually a quote. I'm quoting from Psalm 37. In fact, I'd like you to turn there. Grab your Bible, leave Daniel chapter 11. We won't come back to it this morning, so you don't need to keep a marker there. Go with me to Daniel chapter 11. If you're using a church Bible, you got a page number even. I'm sorry, go with me to Psalm 37. Uh, You even have a page number there on the screen, as I just want to bring this psalm before you. It's a psalm of David. It's a great psalm. We're not going to read all of it because just we don't have time. I'm not going to explain all of it, though I would love to even explain the verses that we're going to, you know, read over, but I think just hearing them will do us good as an expression of this. And again, if you want to go and read it later, that would be great. He just begins there in verse 1, and he says, do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. Pause. When you look at our world and people who are doing evil, And the brokenness in our world, don't let it stress you out. That's the idea of don't fret. Don't worry. Don't don't find yourself just so like, oh, it feels like everything's falling apart and I don't even know where this is going to go. He says, that's not how I want you to embrace the world. He says this, for, verse 2, they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither is the green herb. It's about to end. All of this rebellion against mankind, it's going to be like cutting of grass. And then he calls you and I to live a different way. Verse 3, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as light and your justice as noonday. Boy, there's so much in those verses, but I just want to tell you it's a different way to live. Like, okay, you're living in a broken world do this. Trust Him, rest in Him, commit your way to Him, walk in Him, and just recognize what He's going to be doing in the midst of that. He says in verse 7, rest in the Lord, wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. Wow. I just want to tell you, this is a verse worth knowing. Because see, here's the reality. Daniel 11 is calling you to live with a view that you look at the rebellion of the world, but it doesn't totally stress you out. Now, I say this as an offer because I just want to tell you it's true, but I know this for some of you, that's not what you're doing. Like you are fretting. You are stressed out with what's happening in the world. And I just want to tell you, he's like, don't do that. 
you're only hurting yourself. Like, like you're only causing harm to you. Like, why would you do that? That's not how you need to live. Four, verse nine, evildoers will be cut off. And those who wait on the Lord, they'll inherit the earth for yet a little while. And the wicked will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. That's what we're talking about here in Daniel 11. He says, here's what I just need you to understand. In all the rebellion of mankind and the brokenness that's in our world, you know what? It's going to be a moment. And and everything that has shaken its fist against God and rejected Jesus, there's a day coming where you're going to be like, where'd they go? Like it was like gone, boom. It's just everything that was this, it's going to cease. It's going to go away. That's not going to last. We know where this is going. He says, hey, if you believe that, that's where it's going. You need to trust him. Because the meek, verse 11, will inherit the earth and delight themselves in abundance of peace. The wicked, verse 12, plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. And the Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. Again, just love this. Love, like, so here's this person kind of gnashing their teeth, you know, waving their fist against God and goes like, I know where your day's coming. I mean, I, you, I know where that ends. I mean, that's a terrible, dumb way to live your life kind of a thing. For the wicked have drawn the sword, and they have bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy and to slay those who are upright, of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Part of what Daniel 11 is to remind us of that, so that we could look at any section of our world and say, this is the history of mankind. This is what happens with the rebellion that's happening there. This is where it's happening, and if I get this, then I want to tell you from the words of Psalm 37, there would be a place that there's peace. There's a place of, of resting, of trusting in Him, waiting. It's like, God's got this. He's going to work this out. I know where this ends. I know where this is going. I just want to tell you it's there. And if you can get that, then the idea very simply is to understand, hey, you know, Jesus wins. Hey, be with Him. Or to say it in a different way. Uh, you know, we think about everything we're trying to talk about, and in one sense, the most simple understanding sometimes is the most effective. The end, Jesus wins. Like, that's what you really need to know. Like, you want to figure out everything we just read, and maybe you're like, Jim, I'm still kind of trying to figure out the great tribulation and Antichrist. You know, here's the thing. When it's all said and done, and Jesus comes back riding on his white horse, he wins. And everything, everything else is gone. When the dust settles, the King of kings and Lord of lords reigns, and that which is of him will last for all eternity. And everything that has mocked God, just fought against God, it's all going away. That means we should be on that side. Fast forward to the end of the psalm there in verse, let's just go to verse 34. It says it this way, wait on the Lord and keep his way. And he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power, spreading himself out like a native green tree. Yet he passed away. And behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. He says, I get this. This is where it's going. Verse 37, mark the blameless man. Observe the upright for the future of that man is peace. He says, here's what you could do. If you could see this world the right way, put a mark on the one who is blameless. Who's the one who is blameless? Well, can I tell you from a New Testament, very clear understanding, that only happens in Jesus. The idea of blameless has the idea that our sin is taken care of. What tells us in Romans 8, that there's no more condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, because in Christ, you know, our sins, not in part, but the whole are nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. Hey, that reality that makes us blameless is who He is, and if you're a Christian here this morning, this is you. God says, you know what? See that person right there? Put a mark on them, because when the dust settles, they're going to enter into eternity. And everything that God has done and promised will be theirs. And all of this rebellious mankind, it's going to go away. It's going to go away. The thing that's going to last forever, those who are going to enter into this joyous, those are those who have been made right in Christ. Those are the blameless. And I'm telling you, that's a glorious, wonderful, amazing thing. But I need to hold this out, not just as a truth, but an offer. One of the reasons we're still here. One of the reasons the rapture hasn't happened yet is because God is still making people 
blameless. He is still rescuing people from their sins. It's what we celebrated this morning in communion. It's what we need, and I invite you into that space so what's being spoken of here will be you. Be you. Verse 37, mark the blameless man. Observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. The transgressors shall fall and be destroyed together. The future of the wicked, they're going to be cut off. But salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. And he shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Can I just hold that out and say, boy, that's what we long to you to do today. If that's not where you are, that you would trust in Christ, you trust in him and him be your savior. That's what we're telling you because everything else is going away. Every road that is part of this rebellious world, everything that says no to God, it's going to end and it's going to end poorly. But we're inviting you to that road. We're inviting you to that. And it may be your day to say, okay, I see where this is going and I want to be on the right side of this. And again, if that's you, it's a great day to give your life to Jesus. But one more time, if you know him, it's also yours to just rest in. If you know him, hey, this is going to happen, and this is gloriously wonderful, and maybe this is exactly how you're living your life. Maybe as I read through Psalm 37, you're like, that's me. Like, that's how I do my days. I I trust in the Lord, and I do good, and I just wait on him because I know where this is going, and I'm not stressed out about everything, and if that's you, praise God. But I know this. I'm talking to some of you. It's like, that's not me. (laughs) That's not me. I am so stressed out. I mean, I read the news and it's like, ah, you know, and I feel like the whole world, like they're going to break everything and they're going to mess everything up. And you live your day in some kind of, uh, of anxiety that he's like, hey, don't do that. Like you're only hurting yourself. Like we know where this ends. I mean, however much more time we have, this section of history is going to roll into this final section and it's going to go away. Just rest in him. Find yourself being able to embrace the world in this kind of view that sees wherever we are and and heading to this fast forward to the end and we know how it ends. And if you believe that, there's a rest for the child of God there. Let's close there. So you can close your Bibles, notebooks, wherever that is, and we're going to give you a moment to pray. Maybe it's yours to surrender. Maybe this is your moment to give your life to Jesus. We invite you to do that. Or maybe, one more time, it's yours to press into believing this and not worrying and not fretting and and resting in God and resting in what he's doing. We invite you into that so that in this quiet moment, it could be a place where you just make it real. So one more time, this is yours. I'm going to pray quietly. I'm inviting you to pray quietly. Pastor Phil's just going to play a little bit of music to kind of just give you a little bit of space to talk to God about whatever he's speaking to you about right now. So would you do that? And we'll come back together in prayer in just a moment. God, thank you for this kind of panoramic view of history that covers our past and our future. I thank you for communicating it to us. I hope we have gained even a little insight into it. Lord, where it's confusing, would you just help us to grow in that? But where we can see a glimpse of this, would you help us to feel it? To see the flow of history, to see where it's going, this mystery of lawlessness that's already at work in our world today that's going to culminate in this day of terrible uh, rebellion of the Antichrist and recognize that's our world. That's where it's going. That's the rebellion of, of, of everything that's flowing in that, but it's not a successful rebellion. It's going to end in a moment that Jesus, when you come back. So Lord, right now, I'm just asking for any that don't know you here that you would draw them to you.
that you would bring them to that place that you would make them blameless, that you would rescue them out of this broken world and bring them to you. God, I do pray for that and ask that you would save. And then, Lord, I pray for those that you have saved, that you would say, you could put a mark on these blameless ones and say, hey, the future of that one is peace. God, would you help us to believe it and to believe it in the midst of a world that's crazy at times, the brokenness happening all the way around us, the rebellion, the shaking fist at you in your ways. God, would you help us to believe and trust you and know that you got this, know that it's going to end as exactly as you said it's going to end. Lord, help us to be those who rest in you, who trust in you, who aren't fretting. Would you rescue us from that? We ask right now and just ask for your work in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.